listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Sponsored by Storm, the digital cinema production hub from The Foundry. Go to thefoundry.co.uk slash storm for details. And by the Australian Cinematographers Society. Visit cinematographer.org.au. G'day and welcome to RC podcast number 82, joined uh, in the central tech compound by Jason Wingrove. How are you, sir? Commentary position. I'm very well. Good to be here in the new Tech Miramar um, palace that you have, Tech, tech Gin Palace. We, we like Tech Compound, just for what it's worth. Okay, thank you. Um, I should point out that this is uh, not our permanent recording environment. It's a little um, bouncy, a little echoey here because uh, we're still getting boxes unpacked. It's been uh, chaos, but um, nice to have you here, Jase. Very good to be here. This is excellent. I'm loving the new digs. We do actually have actually have a red room. I look over and see, which is impressive. We have the yellow room, <laughs> the the green room and the green room. The blue room. <laughs> yes, and uh, impressive. Yes, and the pinball machine. But more importantly, yeah, we have the large. Uh, well, I think it's large um, studio for yeah, filming and it, testing. No, it's so. fantastic. You won't know yourself. It's terrific. So, Jason, I have the joy of providing the Red Room interview for this week. Coming up later in the show, I'll be talking to Lee Peterson. Now, Lee is an amazing guy. We actually mentioned him a while ago because when we were at SIDGRAPH, we uh, went to hear him talk about the calibration of digital sensors, which is all basically about what you might consider a Canon-type uh, sensor. And uh, as it turned out, we, we, we went up and, you know, it was not the most prestigious of the SIDGRAPH environments. It was an environment, in fact, where um, it was kind of like a lot of exhibitors around and he was going to be like speaking on a booth, effectively, as opposed to in one of the sort of lecture halls, mm. as a favour for one of the organisers. But as it should happen, uh, they'd mucked up the time. So he turned up, we turned up, and uh, there was actually somebody else speaking and they'd got the times wrong and he was uh, meant to be scheduled later that afternoon. We had an interview that later afternoon and I said, opportunistically, hey, uh, can we buy you a beer or a coffee and go and sit down and talk? Because we really want to talk to you about um, sensors. And he was, I think, kind of surprised that there was a group of us all keen to talk about sensors. So he um, graciously agreed. This this is a long story, but it is going somewhere. We went and sat down in a a private kind of room for, for the press just to have a cup of coffee. And we start talking, and I'm halfway through this discussion, and, and he's really running rings around me on sensors. And, you know, I'm not, okay, maybe I'm a bit arrogant, but, I mean, like, I definitely was trying not to be arrogant, but I was trying to be like, uh, but at some point I just found myself saying, Lee, I don't want to sound like, you know, a dick, but you just know so much about these sensors. And I, like, read up everything I can on them and have done a lot of work over the years, and I'm kind of stunned. What's your background? To which he then said, well... I guess I was inter- well when I was on the Apollo program with the cameras for the moon landing, and we were all like, "What? Back it up! <laughs> Back it up, dude!" So yeah, um, screw the digital sensors. <laughs> sensors. So uh, so we had this great chat at NAB. Absolutely brilliant chat. Uh, sorry, Sidgraf. And I came back and uh, raved about it to a few of mm. our my. Uh, a uh, few friends like Stu and, and people. Everyone was like, you've got to get him on uh, Red Center. And I was like, well, I'll totally try. Well, it took us about six months to coordinate with his schedule and stuff. And we managed to get him on. So I've tried to replicate pretty much that uh, experience. We're going to talk about digital sensors, calibrating digital cameras. It's really a hardcore geek out on that. But I would be remiss, I know, if I didn't also ask him about some of the um, Apollo stuff. Because, well, let's face it, uh, we just That's think it's cool. Yeah. So, and it's Space Month. <laughs> it's Space Month. And, and it's Space Month here at uh, Red Centre. So I'm not trying to top your um, IMAX in space of last week, 
But yes. um, that's coming up later in the Red Room. Okay. And I want to thank Lee for making time for us because really he, uh, he does stuff that, I mean, it's just really, you know, like a lot of people we talk to obviously have an agenda. Lee was just basically being a nice guy. Yeah, an incredibly knowledgeable guy. Just on the subject of thanks, just before we go into the news proper, uh, I just had a little quick overdue thanks to a good mate of mine, Mark Jensen, who does Absolutely. the uh, voiceovers for us at the front of the show. And he's been sort of updating us over the, over the years, uh, you know, changing, you know, changing the reads for us. Uh, he's uh, sort of like, I guess, an ex uh, kind of DJ guy who now is uh, working through a, uh, a service called internetjock.com so you can actually book him for um, voiceovers and any sort of voice work uh, through there internetjock.com so just, I'm going to say that slowly for the Americans who don't understand your accent it's internetjock.com or, but there's no spaces what accent Exactly. Okay. Uh, yeah, he's also got a great podcast, uh, New Media Gear. If you search for New Media Gear on, uh, I think, YouTube and also on iTunes, obviously, uh, he reviews mics and audio gear and really knows his stuff. He's uh, got uh, a lot of experience in the industry. So it's a great um, a great little podcast as well to catch up on. So that's all at newmedia.com. And thank you, Mark, for your continued help. Uh, okay, I guess we're into the news proper. Let's move to the news desk. And now, the RC News. Okay, so uh, the news initially, I think, this week comes out of the UK. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, it's a fairly slowish uh, news uh, week, I guess. But um, the Epic, well, Epic has landed in UK. Basically, um, what's happened is that um, Epic Euro- uh, Red Europe has has one Epic there, uh, mainly obviously for reeducation duties. This isn't a machine that's going to go, isn't assigned by, to anybody. It hasn't been purchased by somebody. It's actually going to be based there, obviously, at uh, Red Europe at Pinewood for... Um, uh, for education purposes, and obviously anyone to come out and have a look and before you order, have a bit of a play. And um, so, yeah, hit the guys up at Red Europe if you want to come out and have a bit of a look-see. Uh, it is... Uh in, it's in the house. It's not going to go out onto a feature or anything. It's, uh, yeah, in-country. Hey, um, I had just changed the subject because um, I will also say that there's nothing stopping you going out right now and, and filming with a red one, and, and quite frankly, we do. Of course. Um, but I had a, another crack at uh, playing with an Alexa during the week, um, brief chat, and it was uh, over at our friends at, um, at Red Apple. Oh, yes. And, uh, God, such nice guys over there. Anyway, they had an Alexa set up, and what I was going to say is they had the, uh, I'm going to say it's the 18 to 48 kind of, uh, does that sound right? Um, mm-hmm. Zoom. From, the little Angeno Yeah, Zoom. I think it's 18 to 48, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. the thing is, it yeah, had the 12 mil adapter on it. So the 12 mil sits on the front of that. Right, okay. And gives you obviously a much wider field of view. So then you have to take it all to all, fully all the way tight and rack the focus to a certain... You have to do some settings to it. I mean, you can't zoom with it uh, with the 12mm 12, 12 adapter on it. What, what I found with the 12mm adapter is that they only just got it. So this was like an initial first impression. The thing that um, I would totally recommend you do is if you're interested in this, acknowledge that I'm just saying that what I... They literally had popped it out of the box and stuck it on. But I, the, thing that, the first thing that I noticed is that the... Um, closest uh, focus point was quite a way out from the lens i expected it to be you know eight inches right or four <laughs> with the 12 mil on yeah and it was it was further out than mm-hmm. that which uh, i'd want to check with and we will we'll check with um the guys at uh, red apple and see if that they've uh, worked out whether that is exactly what it is because i was hoping that the 12 mil adapter would be a really interesting lens combination 
15 to 40, I think. 15 to 40? Right. Sounds right. And, uh, yes, with the 12 mil adapter on it, of course, it has that kind of classic, um, if you're used to the 8 mil Sigma on a uh, SLR, it had that kind of, like, you know, uh, convex lens property. Which, yeah. Which is funky to look at. It doesn't have anywhere near that sort of 180-degree field of view. And, of course, there is some lens curvature. But, you know, I kind of like a bit of lens curvature. Absolutely. It's very hard to get it these days. you actually got to go, go looking for a lot of lenses and, you know, to their credit, get spend a lot of money trying to make it, um, you know, not have, uh, you know, curvature and, and lens bending. It'll give you that wide-angle shot but keep everything uh, quite uh, – uh, all your verticals and horizontals quite clean. So, yeah, oh, that's good. So, uh, um Thoughts on Alexa then, having well, another having another play with it. Obviously, not in a three D rig this time. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing for me is that um, it'd be really nice if the um, the camera had uh, recording audio on it and stuff like that, which is sort of coming real soon now. So right. there's a couple of things that we're still waiting on, but I, I really like the camera, and I've got to tell you, I think it's really uh, kick ass. We also had the new um, O'Connor Follow Focus on it. Um, which was nice. You'd love it. It's a very yes. I've had I've had a play there with it. It's gorgeous. It's Left gorgeous. and right mount. Yep, it's beautifully made. It's absolutely stunning. It's nice, isn't it? It's very very nice. nice very low profile. Beautifully made. Um, yeah, if you're a focus wall, that's 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 a keeper for sure. Um, but yeah, no, I, I thought the Alexa was terrific. I I really like that camera for just everything from. I haven't seen one yet. I don't know if they're in the wild with the uh, iPad. Wireless is that in the, the Alexa Plus? I guess is I've all seen it in, at a trade show. Yeah, mm. is that out? I don't know. No, not yet. I don't think so. But um, that's one of the few things that uh, I definitely would like to play with. Uh, but yeah, look, it's just a really good solar camera. I like the uh, heat fan arrangement at the back, like the sealed unit that you know cools it and keeps it kind of yeah. But it's still, you know, it is obviously a still a bulky, you know, it's still, this is, these are still big, you know, decently heavy, bulky cameras. And, you know, we still, we, sure, we still welcome, you know, Epic. Well, <laughs> with okay, open arms I would say, for its form factor. Yeah, but I would say my point is I don't have an Epic. I do have an Alexa. Yeah. So true. we can only talk about what we can hold. That's true. I'll happily talk about an Epic when I can hold it. That's true. Um. Changing gears to an even smaller camera, um, Mr. Wingrove, you have actually got a really small camera. Uh, oh, this thing. We talked about this before. The NEX5? Is yes. this what you're talking about? Yes. So I brought it in today because I'm going to do a little bit side-by-side with the um, red one. Because what we talked about, I think a couple of weeks back, I uh, there was a... Um, uh, Film and Digital Times had a little bit of a post about using these as a breakfast viewfinder. So I've got my mount, PL mount now, and we just take a couple of shots with it with the 7. It's really nice with it. Just put it, got the 18-50 uh, uh, red lens on here just for the moment, and it feels really comfortable. It's really nice. What I think is really good about it is that the NEX5 itself, now having one in my hand, is... It's a really solid metal, you know, really feels like a really, like, you know, if you're throwing it around on set, it's not going to be damaged in five minutes. You know, nice metal um, flip-out LCD monitor on the back. It's really good for, you know, not getting overhead angles or turn it upside down and high shots. So, um, yeah, we'll yet to, when we finish recording, I'll go and put it next to the uh, red one and see if the field of view, obviously, is going to be the main thing. If the field of view matches, yep. then it's going to be a worthy competitor. Obviously, when Epic start to come out and we've got a much bigger chip, it's not going to work so much. But obviously, for Alexa and for uh, Red and obviously for film jobs, 
it's uh, going to be the right size chip for for 16 by 9 work. So, yeah, we'll give it a play. But it's nice. It's fun, isn't it? looks good. It's fun, <laughs> and it's so small that it looks like... Is that a lens cap or have you got a camera on your lens? Yeah, exactly. When we put it on the uh, red 18 to 85, which is a beast of a lens, it's almost impossible. The lens itself, it's almost impossible to, to hold anyway. I like then, that lens, though. <laughs> it's great. But um, obviously, it's not just you know a geeky tool for, for silly sake. I think we just I like the idea of having a director's viewfinder that... Um, you can shoot, yeah. Look well, then everyone can look over the shoulder and see what you're seeing. You don't have to hand it over to somebody. Well, you could just hit record. Or right? hit record, absolutely. Yep, no, I think... I mean, if you're going on a recce and you had that lens with you, mm. you could shoot something and take it back to the agency and show them. Yeah, and I just sort of held my little Canon uh, 1.2 just into the mount, just held it there, and it's really nice... Uh, the size of the sensor, even though it's not you know full frame, it's Super 35. You, I think you could get some quite good pictures out of it. Anyway, we shall continue to play. Uh, but that's not news. Uh, what is news is the uh, Red Pro map boxes are out. I, I, I get in inverted commas. Uh, it's uh, ready for order in the Red Store. Uh, the first batches are out. I think they've made about 30 or so. Those first batches are already done, bought, sold, and will, should be uh, shipping out this week. Um, it's it essentially is a clip on. I think the idea is that it's going to be a um, adaptable and scalable map box. So it's obviously in its current form for twelve hundred bucks, you get a clamp on map box. Um, I've got a couple of questions for it, and when all these ex- the add-ons and the accessories come out, then we'll sort of know how flexible this system is. But at the moment, it is clamp-on only. It's got two uh, four by five point six stages in it. And none of those are rotating. So if you want to rotate your filter at the moment in its clamp-on mode, you're going to have to obviously rotate the map box, which obviously brings, uh, even though it's a reasonably wide-angle-looking map box, it's going to, at some st- on some lenses, if you're rotating it and holding it or not, mounting it or uh, um, fixing it at an odd angle, you're going to start to get corners of your map box in, really, if you want to. Uh, rotate, uh, rotate a filter, which is you know a fair enough thing. Uh, putting a, a polar in there, for a polar. Or, or or a grad, um, or if you wanted to have it, yeah, if you wanted to have a square linear polar in the front and um, a um, use it as a poor man's very ND or an exp- or a rich man's very ND, <laughs> <laughs> having two polars in there and uh, very ND it that way. Um, so I think the theory is that there's going to be coming accessories, uh, rod mounts. Uh, at the moment, it only comes with uh, an, a, uh, a 110, 114, and 142mm adapter, so it's more suited to larger lenses, uh, master primes, and things like that. Uh, theoretically, at the moment, there is no 80mm or 95mm adapter, so those are more clamping on for suiting something like uh, old standard uh, Zeiss standards or Zeiss super speeds and uh, um, ultra primes. So there's no clamp-on adapters for those lenses at the moment. There is no rotating stage at the moment. There's no rod mount. There's no swing-out mount. All of these things, I guess, are going to come. But for the moment, um, if you can get your hands on it, you have a $1,200 clamp-on map box. Um, uh, obviously, it's, it's beautifully made. It looks gorgeous. Carbon fibre and aluminium. It's, it's a gorgeous piece of kit. I'm sure it's very light. Um, and it's pretty much what I paid for, like a little genius map box. So that's probably much awesome. What you about what you'd pay for a Red Rock Micro map box? So 
Excellent. Anyway, it, more will come to pass as we find out about the upcoming accessories. But for the moment, it's a bit hard to tell. Do you buy this map box? Who knows when these accessories are going to be? There's no plan for when these accessories are going to be released. That you can't even if you order a map box at the moment. There's no there's no there's no stock ready to be shipped out to you. So. Um, uh, maybe these are some of the things we can ask Ted. Hey, um, just is that it for for news? Uh, that is it for news. Can I just do a? We did a discussion last week. It was a rat hole on um, floating windows. If you remember, uh, yes, that yes, got a big response. A lot of people uh, sent in uh, comments, uh, emails, and tweeted about it. So we went to the source. So not obviously on this podcast because it's really uh, not. Uh, specifically about digital cinematography, over on the Normal FX podcast, we have an interview with uh, Robert Newman. Now, he is the guy that I was talking to in uh, Asia. He works as the VFX... uh, Sorry, the stereographer supervisor for Disney on such films as uh, Tangled. Heck of a nice guy. Uh, Actually, have a bit of a chat with him about uh, his career, and then we get into this discussion of the various tools in their toolbox, of which Floating Window, I think, is one of the most interesting. Because after that... After we had that chat, literally, I think a day or so later, I went and actually saw Tangled, and it was really quite interesting. Having had that chat beforehand, I was not conscious of the floating windows, of course, because they don't jump out at you. But once you sort of know what they're doing, it's quite interesting to look at the window and see what it's what it's doing. It's almost on one side of the frame, you can have the the, the top of the frame almost coming out towards you, and that you can cant one side of the frame, and uh, the right hand side of the frame can actually be further away than the front. They can angle it. And cant it and do some almost gets out of square in a few times if you're actually looking at it but the point is that you're not if you don't know to look at it you are not conscious of it uh, even if you do and you happen to look at it it's not disconcerting it never takes you out of the film it's just uh, an interesting way to give you uh, a really great um, 3D effect I've got to say that was a really nice uh, nicely done 3D that was a great oh, it was definitely worth seeing uh, in 3D over film, the regular 2D. Yeah, it's a wonderful film. It's really nicely done. I liked that. So I recommend seeing it, and I also recommend seeing it in 3D because uh, it is very, very nicely done. It's not uh, not a gimmick. Yeah, I think it was... I'm going to say Rodriguez, but it wasn't. It was, um, it was uh, Reservoir Dogs, um, mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction... Um, Tarantino yeah. named it one of his top ten films of the year. Right, yeah, no, it is really nicely done. Great, great storytelling. You know, great performances. Beautiful, beautiful animation above all. It's just gl- gloriously animated and lit. It's a really, really, really great job. So yeah, it'll be good to check out that chat on Floating Windows. A bit more about it, if that's your bag. Um, okay, so let's uh, head over to the red room. Um, now, as I said at the outset, I've sort of set this interview up. I think um, the thing about digital cameras is that. And, and I mean this in all respect. There are photographers and DOPs who don't need to know much tech on their cameras, and I am friends with a bunch of them, and I respect them immensely. There just are another group, which I guess I fall into, which really enjoys knowing a bit more about your cameras because, in part, I get frustrated when things uh, don't work the way I expect. For example, if I'm trying to intercut two 5Ds and I look the same, why is that? Uh, or if something is going to be worked on a visual effects shot and I'm trying to match things in and I'm having difficulty, and yet theoretically on paper it should all work, and it doesn't match in, you know, why is that? And so understanding a bit more about how these things work is just, I think, builds up. Now, you don't have to be that guy. You can be the guy or girl that's the cinematographer that's basically, it's a tool and I don't need to know how they make the paintbrush to use it to draw a picture. And I totally get that. But if you're not in that camp, I think you're going to enjoy this interview. 
you are entering the Red Room. So, Lee, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, and glad meeting you at uh, SIGGRAPH. It was kind of a highlight for me to have people that were so interested. Oh, we are. We're phenomenally interested. And we will, uh, in a second, I'd like to discuss what you're there to talk about, which is, of course, stuff to do with calibrating sensors, uh, understanding better how your sensor works, um, and some of the things you can actually do to get a better handle on your sensor, which is uh, very interesting and very technical. But when we were meeting at SIGGRAPH, you and I um, and a few other uh, members of our crew were sitting around, and we drifted onto a conversation about how uh, some of your past, and I just wanted to, to touch on that again now, if I could. And, and what we discussed at that time, which was somewhat of a surprise to me because I was there to talk about calibration, was you were actually involved with the um, uh, Apollo landings. Yeah. Yeah, that was the beginning. Well, that wasn't the beginning, but that was part of what we were doing. There was a lot of technology being thrown around, and uh, shooting in outer space was always a new thing to do with cameras because uh, you're dealing in a you know zero-atmospheric situation, which, one, alters optics, and it affects the cameras, and you get temperature, and you have a lot of other things. And uh, the NASA group stepped up and said, well, you know, <laughs> it's not going to any, be any good to go to the moon without having a whole bunch of pictures to prove it, you know, and see what we got. And um, I ended up working through uh, Hasselblad, and uh, they developed a, uh, a camera with a 60-millimeter lens. It's a bygone lens with a Rizzo plate, which is a glass plate that's etched uh, with indices on the side so you can actually do uh, trigonometric measurements for size of stuff without having to lay Now, this is, the, this is the plate that had the little Xs that we see over yep. the top of mm-hmm. some of the archival yep. NASA that's, shots. That's ground right in. The, the film fits flush right up against that glass plate. Okay, and uh, Kodak came up with an S-star base film. An S-star doesn't shrink or expand. Uh, temperature would, but not much after it's been processed. So you could get pretty accurate measurements knowing the angle of view of the lens and what was out in front, and then looking at the indices on the uh, Rizzo plate, and you measure off of those, and you can determine size, just trigonometric func- functions. And, uh, and and you, you already touched on it, but of course we we sort of uh, have so many variables that we have to kind of come to terms with. Obviously, there's lower gravity, um, but there's also these immense pressure differentials and stuff, isn't there? Yeah, well, yeah, you come from your normal atmospheric, you know, uh, thirty millibar pressure in your cabin, and then when they evacuate to zero <laughs> or almost zero, uh, if your lenses are sealed tight. Okay, they blow apart. So you have to be able to allow, you know, the atmosphere out of things. Okay, so you have to compensate, or you have to design something that won't blow apart with, you know, 30 <laughs> millibars of pressure on the inside. And, you know, it can play havoc with your apertures, you know, the cold temperature, the type of lubricate, lubrication and stuff that you have on your shutters and mechanisms and film advance and all that sort of stuff. And they were using a 70-millimeter back so they could do interchangeable backs without having to load the film. Everything was preloaded. And, uh, yeah, because I think that's the other thing. We, it's easy to imagine um, that there are some of these technical considerations, but these guys are operating these with incredibly thick gloves. There's certainly <laughs> no way you could look through the viewfinder. <laughs> no, no. Well, there is, well, with the bygone lens, there is no uh, viewfinder view. It's point-and-shoot. 
okay, because the rear element of the lens is so close to the film plane that there's no room for a mirror in there, okay, and so that was the the advantage of the bygone lens. Uh, there were there were some designs of the bygone lens. It, it's a really interesting design. Uh, the front aperture and the rear aperture are the same diameter uh, lens, so your pass through is a one to one relationship, which is you know much easier to design for, correct for aberrations and spherical distortion and coma and and that sort of stuff. So, Tell me, did the cameras develop much during the Apollo mission? Because yeah. you know, as you say, it's. Mm-hmm. Uh, such an unusual environment. What did you learn that changed your design? Well, uh, we had sent cameras up in in outer space and stuff and uh, trying to deal with it. And the 35mm cameras were okay, but they had a lot of mechanical parts and uh, uh, the temperature considerations. And also, you have to realize you're pulling G-forces when you sit on the end of an exploding rocket and go sending up there, and that, that can alter and affect things before you even begin to take pictures, because it can mess up your equipment. The vibration uh, factors, the harmonics, you know, can shake everything loose if you're not careful, and so that was the first considerations was the uh, the stress of just getting it off the ground, and then you had temperature configurations. You had the ability of the uh, operator or the camera to be able to manipulate it, You know, big fat gloves don't help when you're pushing little tiny buttons. And uh, everything had to be kind of just preset, kind of automatic, you know. We had big levers on the outside of the Hasselblad and the gears so he could make some adjustments, you know, without having to put hands around the lens itself. And, you know, it just, you just, we had the the suits there. We put the suits on and we hold the camera and we decide, well, this is what we need to do. And it... uh, it was really nuts and bolts, you know. You you were just designing from whatever you felt would work and putting it through tests, you know, sh- shakers, you know, where you put it through G4 shaker tests and all kinds of stuff. But we put them on a centrifuge and swung them around on the centrifuge to <laughs> see if the film would... But the second they get back in the uh, the command module, the, or get basically back in from being out on a, on a walk, you've got very fine dust everywhere as well. So. Uh-huh, ah, yes. <laughs> And the magnetic charges on the dust, you know, you have to sweep them off with anti-static, you know, and stuff, bring in a dust inside the, the moon, moon orbital landers and stuff were, were of concern. Uh, it, 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 again, it was so primitive, you know, when you realize how primitive that we really are and, and what we were dealing with, it's amazing we even got there, much less got back. And... Uh, well, but but I also think that it's interesting because the most dramatic pictures from the moon, from my point of view, are the still photos or the, the film photos because they're such high resolution in the video. But oh, yeah. you you're not ex, you're not exposing that stuff for a long time. You're you're taking the photos and then it's days later after reentry that you know it's being picked up. I mean, these must have been in fairly sealed units. But was there any concern about that unexposed film or a rather exposed film after it's been? Shot? No, not really. They just uh, they just left it, and they couldn't unload the magazines, so they just stored the whole magazine. Now, they were 70-millimeter magazines. They didn't load and unload film and anything. Everything was preloaded, which made the Hasselblad so nice, okay, because the 70-millimeter backs were interchangeable, so they could just right. change the back as needed. So that, that is, made life a lot simpler. 
I know that the guys that were working with the film had an interesting problem because they didn't want to run the film through at 24 frames a second because they just chew up too much film. And obviously, the weight of carrying lots of film was a problem. Yes. So a lot of the footage that we saw that came well, back... Well, they left the, the cameras initially, and there, yeah. Yeah. So the, the, a lot of the film that we saw when, when it was initially played back was, of course, played back at the wrong speed because they played it back, you know, shot not at 24, played back at 24. And so I think a lot of the world saw a lot of that film footage actually at the wrong speed for... Yeah. For, for years, actually. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Can I ask you a question about about calibration? Because we're going to be going there with the sensors and the digital in a second. But in my research for talking to you today, I was looking through the archives, and I found a photo where it looked like there was a um, grey card with a sort of a uh, an obviously being able to hold it kind of strap uh, lying on the surface of the moon in one of the photos. At the and it it got me thinking that um, were there issues for you in terms of getting a valid reading as to what the actual colors and uh, tonal mm. values of the moon were? No, I didn't work on that side of it. That was part of another photographic division that was working on, you know, the film process. Mine was more on the mechanical side, okay, just the right. engineering and the optics and that sort of stuff, and I wasn't dealing with the film and the color calibration and all that sort of stuff. Because, in fact, you, you have gone on uh, to design lenses and build lenses and do yeah. a lot of actual physical lens design, haven't you? Yeah. All kinds of stuff. <laughs> a lot of weird stuff. <laughs> um, and were you, you stayed with Hasselblad after the Apollo mission, was that right, or did you move on after that? Well, that, they, I, was in, I was actually not with them. Uh, I was an outside contractor. Uh, right. I, I, actually, what I was the interface between the military-industrial complex that was paying and utilizing this stuff, and the outside vendors. So I sat right in the middle okay. of that. Okay, and the vendors would come and say, well, yeah, we've got this and we can do. And then NASA and the military were saying, oh, by the way, we need this. So I sat right in the middle between the two, <laughs> trying to come, you know, satisfy the needs of both or use the talents of the outside vendors. And And on a mechanical front, Obviously, the range of contrast in a moon mission must be extraordinary because I think you said to me when we were talking last time that space isn't dark. It's actually pretty lit up. And how did you deal with sort of the uh, adjusting the, obviously, other than just uh, you, you wanted to have a fairly deep depth of field because you wanted to not have anything out of focus, It was, and they couldn't put it up through their eye in focus. So how did mechanically you kind of solve that problem of wanting to have uh, uh, control and also being able to see into the extremes of uh, contrast? Well, uh, the contrast basically was controlled by the type of film and um, what the lenses would offer in contrast. Um, It's pretty extreme. I mean, the moon is pretty bright. And then also the most beautiful shot they had was the moon in the foreground and uh, the earth coming up, you know, the earth rise. And trying Mm -hmm. to get those two balanced out in one shot, it's uh, pretty extreme. you got a lot of highlights and a lot of deep shadows, so you do build a lot of contrast because you don't have light bouncing off of trees, ground, and clouds. So you get a pretty defined edge. It's easy to to have things looking sharper just because of the contrast of the scene. So after you um, 
left the Apollo mission and, and if we move forward, you, you obviously did lens design and stuff and you've consulted with a lot of big companies. And, mm -hmm. and it's at that point that I wanted to just jump way forward to this discussion now about digital sensors because uh, that was what you were at SIDGRAPH discussing and in terms of mm -hmm. um, calibrating. Yeah. And, and I think that the thrust of what we were discussing was this idea of having some understanding of what a sensor is doing so that you're in a better position to get more accurate results. Um, in particular, at, at a sort of fundamental level, once you get past basic photography, wanting to actually be able to calibrate your camera. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, when you bought a film camera and you bought your film, the first thing you used to do is shoot a color chart and just, you know, test the color chart and run it through the processor and uh, see where your color calibration was and what the grain was. And then people weren't satisfied with stuff. They'd alter things or push the film a little bit or pull the film back to control the contrast. And so you, you did do your testing. You tested your shutter speeds and you did some other things. But what I find now is that people buy their digital cameras. They don't test anything. They just start shooting. They put a card in there. And they don't do a real test to see what the metering is doing in the camera. And in my testing, when I started on this project, I grabbed all the manufacturers' cameras I could get my hands on and started testing, and I found some manufacturers were consistently overexposing everything. So when you zero in on the center needle, what it says was, you know, a neutral gray, sometimes you're two-thirds to a full stop over. And so just to walk through that, if I was to actually get my camera and point it at a, a white object that was lit so that it red as well, being plenty of texture in it, a white, white object with texture in it, and that meter yeah. should read it as gray, okay, yep. when you center it. And they're not doing that. They're ex overexposing. And some are underexposing, and some are, are pretty close to being right on. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Maybe it's something going on with the processor of the lens, you know, the stopping down. You know, it isn't stopping down enough. You know, it might be a problem. So I picked the, I p try and pick a shutter speed that's fast enough and an aperture that puts me in the middle of the range so I'm not squeezing the aperture blades all the way down because sometimes that's a problem for some of these lenses, which I did find in some zoom lenses that I tested, that you can't get consistent exposure from wide open to stop down because if you stop down, the blades don't go all the way down, even though you think you're at f22. Right. Yeah, and so that that was so, working, and so there's a lot of little errors that happen. But to basically get an idea of what that chip can do, you want to be able to photograph with the camera. Once you figure out is it exposing correctly, and you make that compensation. Okay, that's the first adjustment that you have to do. Then, so to just walk through that because we just touched on it. Basically, you would actually shoot a white wall as gray, and then you'd you'd bracket up and up up and and below that, right? Yeah. Well, no, you just go in and put it in whatever system you're going to process it in, okay, Photoshop or whatever, and you'd look mm -hmm. to see that histogram is that thing in the middle where it's supposed to be. If it isn't, you can look at that gauge up there and you can tell how much it's over or underexposing. And then you go in and do your exposure compensation and your second pass, okay, you put your media card back in, go back and re-expose, but this time you've corrected for it. All right. Then you do an exposure range, you know, going in stops up. You overexpose a stop, another stop, another stop, maybe three stops. And then the same thing under. You go three or four stops under, and you come back and you look at it. And, and 
you open those files up and you look into the histogram at the bottom, is there still information there? Okay. And is it recoverable information? Because in digital now, we can recover a lot of information from the original exposure, being overexposed or underexposed. So you find out where the overexposure limit is, where there's absolutely no detail in there, and you make your notes and you look down and you go, I'm finding it, it averages between two and three stops over for most of the sensors and lenses. Okay, And then underexposure, I'm finding you can sometimes, as far as four or five stops under, you can still pull some information out of there. And now you begin to know if you're going to do an HDR exposure, as a lot of people are doing, you know when you pick your mid-range, you know where the limits of the high are going to be, and you don't exceed that, and the same on the underside. All right, And then you can get that information out of your HDR exposure. But if you haven't ever tested your camera, you aren't going to be right. <laughs> you're going to spend a lot of time fussing around to get it right. And you're going to sit there and scratch your head, as you guys were telling me about a lot of stuff, that you just didn't understand what was going on because you didn't have... Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we, we said to you was that uh, somebody said to me one day, what do you rate the uh, the Canon 5D Mark II as in terms of I, um, ISO? And, and I was like, uh, well, actually, I have a lot of trouble rating. I mean, I can rate a, a red camera, but I can't rate a Canon, of course, because of the uh, the variable gain. Yeah, yeah, the the gain. Well, that's that's all... See, changing ISO... And a digital camera is just like having a stereo amplifier and you turn up the volume. Okay, you're just applying more electricity to the chip. Okay, so you're asking more out of that chip. And as you do that, as you increase the ISO, you're increasing the voltage going across that chip, what it's reading. You get heat uh, noise, you get temperature noise, and background noise, and... uh, you know, there, there's just a lot of little things that happen when you start turning the juice up on it. But it's actually a bit different between, say, a Canon 5D Mark II and a and a RED because the RED uh, chip is going to produce an image, and you're absolutely right, like the ISO is, is a metadata kind of concept. But uh, if we... You pointed me to something which I thought was really interesting to do with the file size of a Canon uh, frame when you actually take uh, a frame. Mm-hmm. And really that file size doesn't vary... Um, through a range of ISO uh, from about sort of 100, 200 up to about 800, and then it starts to rapidly increase yeah. because um, there seems to be some stuff that it's doing to the chip. So it's unlike the, the red where that processing Well, is that's what we chip. call dark body radiation on the chip, okay? And the way to test that, okay, which I tell people to find out where the limitations are on their chip with dark body radiation, is just put a lens cap on the, on the uh, lens or on the body, Okay, and set it at ISO 100 or the lowest one, and take a series of pictures. And doesn't matter what the f-stop or shutter speed or anything is. You just start snapping away, and all you do is turn up the ISO. You go through their menu and you click up another ISO, and you just take it all the way up. And when you bring that into your software, okay, you will actually see if you look at the file size, a change in the file sizes. Okay. And the file size will increase as you turn the gain up because the dark body radiation on the chip is being read. In other words, the electrical uh, output is increasing and the processor is reading that. Okay, so that can be added to your image. It's like a base image or a prefog, as you call it. 
and that can affect your exposures if you're shooting at high ISOs. You have to compensate. Sometimes I've seen as much as a five megabyte difference in file size, okay, from ISO 200 to ISO 1600. Okay. Yeah, we found between twenty one went from twenty one meg to twenty seven meg in that range, which was about a six meg increase. Yeah, and and I was astonished; I'd never noticed that before. Yeah, and so if you're if you're trying to expose at the higher ISOs, you're going to be actually the the processor's going to be overexposing for you. Also, it's not just the metering of the camera anymore; you're adding that to your file. Now, this would be one issue, but. If we now add in the fact that we're using these, say, uh, the 5D, I'm just going to keep hammering on that because I know it, yeah. um, as a video device, then it in itself actually heats up. Now, as it heats up, it's going to actually increase the noise even if you don't change the ISO. Is that not correct? Exactly, yeah. As you start shooting, the, uh, the heat factor starts building up in it. So if you're editing uh, ends together, you shoot a scene, say, for 30 seconds, okay, and then you shoot another scene and you're going to splice those two scenes together, you could have an exposure change. And the this reason for this is that literally the the sensor, obviously the still sensor takes a shot and you wander around for a bit and take another shot, you wouldn't notice any difference. But uh, either in continuous burst mode or in video mode, it's just sure. constantly going. And, yeah. and you, on a 10-minute that clip, flutter. that's... Yeah. Yeah. You, you'll see the differences, yeah. yeah. Now, I think you told me that the amplifier is actually on the chip on the Canon versus on the RED, where the amp is actually off the chip on a, yeah. a chipset. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also uh, what happens is in some of these small 35 cameras, um, the processor is so close to the chip itself that as it heats up, you will see down in the dark body radiation an actual flare in the corner because the heat from the... the um, processor is actually passing its heat over to the corner of the chip. They're mounted too close to the chip. Uh, on the phase one 60 megapixel back, they take four chips and put them together. So they're kind of spliced together to get the area. And there's processors in all four corners. And when I showed it to them that at the higher ISO, that that was actually showing up in there. They had flare in all four corners. So which, which uh, camera or chip was this? That's the phase one, 60 megapixel. Right. Yeah. Um, and a good way to, to see this happen is to put in a new sort of 32 gig card and hit burst mode and just hold the button down, right? Yeah, yeah, and watch the file size change. <laughs> you can see it. You don't even have to look at the damn images if you don't want to. Now, if you want to process um, the, the one of those images, or not process it, but just put it like in... Uh, a raw editor, okay, and you push your, it'll be a black, you'll see nothing but black when it first comes up. And you run the exposure bar all the way over to the maximum, and you run the gain bar all the way up, and you take the black uh, level bar and pull it all the way left. All of a sudden, you'll see this sort of a magenta grainy thing pop up on your screen, even though you never took a picture, but you'll be able to see your pixelation. And by doing that, You'll also see where the processor flaring's coming in at the lower level. You'll see the kind of noise factor that's built into the chip. And you'll also see if there's any banding going on in the chip. Okay, that's the real telltale flavor of that chip. That's what that chip is actually all about. That's what you're laying an image down up on top of. 
Now, now do you mean noise banding or Everything. color yeah, shifts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Noise, right. uh, noise banding, uh, heat sensing, um, some flaws in the chip. You'll see drop pixels if they're there. And and the other thing is that a because um, again the way that kind of a stills camera is designed is it's sort of meant to be calibrated to itself. But increasingly we're shooting them with multiple cameras, and there is actually a certain degree of um, difference between sort of chip to chip or camera to camera. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, there will be also lens to lens. You know, you have to if if you're shooting multiple cameras, um, you really have to test every lens against every lens. Okay, no two lenses are the same. I don't care, you know, who builds them. Um, when we did high instrumentation work, uh, we always had a whole batch of lenses that we put on a collimator and tested, and then we tested them on film. And we swapped them from camera to camera, and we'd have what we call a prime batch, and they all had a big red dot on them. <laughs> so if we had, you know, a half a dozen cameras shooting uh, turbine blades spinning around, we had everything matched. You know, so it'd be consistent. And Hollywood kind of does that too, and used to do it on a lot of stuff. Uh, James Wong Howe and some of those guys are really finicky about the cameras that they had, and there were certain cameras that they worked with, and other ones they wouldn't work with. So, so on the uh, on a camera, we've got um, a number of options for controlling what we're going to do with it with any particular shot or um, clip that we're filming. Mm-hmm. Um, ISO, f-stop, and exposure time is obviously the, the triangle. Uh, the thing is, of course, when I'm shooting video, I tend to lock in a fairly uh, you know, wide-open f-stop because I want to show the depth of field, and I'm mm-hmm. sort of stuck with wanting to do um, uh, half of my exposure time for 180-degree shutter effect, so that's kind of locked in. And I obviously want to keep my ISO under control for for noise so i end up going to um variable nds and uh, nd filters and of course that's going to provide some real interesting um optical characteristics isn't it yeah it can it can um a lot of the new lenses that they're doing especially on like for the 7d where you use the aps size sensor and lenses are particularly designed for that they're they're using these uh aspherical front ends on them. Uh, The reason they're doing a lot of this is because the chips are like a mirror. They're much brighter and they reflect a lot more light than film does. So sometimes the light passing through the lens bounces off the chip and it's going right back out through the lens. And you lose what they call the modulation transfer function, which is the contrast to the lens, by a lot of light being scattered around inside the lens. So the images look a little flatter than they should be or just well, yeah, because that directly affects my perception of sharpness, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it, well, sharpness to a chip is one dark pixel, one light pixel, you know. And the better it can de- detect that is what's called resolution. But as you get spillover or you get a lot of flare in there, it can't do that. The resolution goes to hell in a handbasket really quick. And uh, Be- Because of loss of contrast yeah, as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, loss of contrast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The MTF curve. That affects the resolution in there. The resolution is a is kind of a, a hard thing to determine for a lot of things, especially on digital, um, because you're, you're talking about lines per millimeter capability of a lens, and that really has a lot to do with the contrast. Its ability to hold that sharp edge as it passes through the glass all the way to this film or sensor. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And so, 
the minute the contrast goes down, that becomes very difficult for it to hold that resolution sometimes. But I think I interrupted you because you were talking about the uh, ND filters and the variable NDs. Well, the ND filters, the problem, getting back to that, is anytime you put a piece of glass in front of an aspherical design lens and also that's designed to disperse a lot of this light off to the corners. So if you look down in the lens, you'll see what looks like a bellows, a, a, a ring on the inside, and that's to scatter light okay, and absorb it. So the light that's passing back out and down gets distributed off to the sides of the lens and doesn't get caught up into the image area. But you put a, a piece of glass in front of it, especially one that's not very well coated, and you're going to add okay, dispersion and reflection that the lens isn't correcting for, and you'll reduce your contrast. And I find with a lot of these things, as we were discussing earlier, even when we were talking about doing um, uh, calibration of the camera, that we're getting a very non-linear uh, response to different wavelengths of light. So you actually get some real issues. I mean, a lot of the things we've been discussing, for example, just make it harder to get, say, consistent skin tones. It's not just a, a light level or even a contrast thing. It's a color thing as well, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you're shifting the color, and that has a lot to do with the chip and the processors too. Uh, you can check also when you're doing your your base testing uh, is the uh, when you do the uh, dark body radiation you can read the color profile of the chip. In other words, what that is, it's how the processor is pulling the information and the algorithm that they use to assemble that information because it's strictly a black and white image. They're applying an RGB format to it and the proprietary algorithms they use will shift that color balance. I found that the Nikons generally shift, uh, have a high blue shift. Well, if you're doing that, then trying to get skin tones is, mm, excuse me, a little hard. And But you get into the uh, Canon, and the uh, red and blue are a lot closer together, and the green is down on the left side of the curve in the shadow area. And what I find is if you overexpose the blue uh, area of the field on the chip, that tends to reduce what they call, when you end up processing the image, it looks like it's got less noise in the file, okay, because that's the weakest channel, all right? And so their ability to say, well, gee, look, our cameras have less noise means, well, by the way, we have a blue bias. <laughs> so your sky is going to be bluer or whatever. The skin tones aren't going to be as good, but you get less noise in the right. file. So it's all their marketing approach to things of how they've gone about treating the basic information coming off of that chip. And it's always a good thing to know. That's the other thing about knowing your camera and processing uh a dark body radiation image to see what the color profile is really going to be. Is it a blue? Does it lean to the blue? Does it lean to the red? Is there a good combination, you know, in there somewhere? And that'll help you a lot too. And you also need to do that with your lenses because there's different coatings on lenses that shift things. Yeah, yeah, it's really important to understand that stuff, and uh, and it does make a, a considerable difference. And it's subtleties that stuff that you sometimes I think don't necessarily unable to articulate, but it just seems to be um, more satisfactory or less. Well, it saves you from a lot of post-production, really. Yeah, true. 
I, I want to ask you also about uh, – so we, we were talking about HDRs, and uh, I know you, when you and I were talking, you came up with the most extraordinary um, tip that I just would love to you to repeat, which was you were asking me how I um, found the, the nodal point of my uh, lenses when I was doing HDRs for stitching panoramas because, of course, you want to uh, move the camera back. Yeah off the nodal point. <laughs> and, um, well, nodal points are becoming just... another issue because all the newer lenses, uh, what they do is, like, if you look at these new lenses, they'll, you'll pick up a Canon 24mm 1.4 lens, and that, that lens is about 75 millimeters long, okay, or maybe longer. I forgot how long they really are. But uh, the older 24s we used to use on the film cameras, you know, they were short, okay? Yep. And and uh, they were close, you know. And and the differences between a long one and a short lens is the front half of the lens actually is the 24 millimeter lens. The back half is called a possel lens design. And what they're doing is they use the front assembly to be the wide angle gathering part of it, and they grab from the 24 millimeters behind uh, on the focal length then they grab that image that would have normally hit a film plane and they run a possible lens that parallels all the, the light going back so when it hits the chip, okay, you don't have tangent line uh, lines hitting the corners of the chip. All right? Like on... Uh, so it hits more evenly. Yeah. Like what they did on their camera is they shifted the angle of the... Uh, the lenses that are the micro lenses that are over the chip, okay, they've moved those so they're at an angle. So the light coming in at a tangent actually gets focused on the chip, okay, instead of being bent off to the edge. That's why in a lot of digital images with certain lenses, you see a hell of a lot of blue fringing or magenta fringing or whatever it is in the edges. That's because the. Okay. Yeah, it's a biorefringence as the light is passing through these. Pixel lenses that are on a chip. So the possible lenses are there to try and correct for all of this. Well, what that means is the nodal point of that lens is quite a bit far forward. You know, we used to measure the nodal point uh, H prime right behind just about where the aperture blades were. Okay, <laughs> but unfortunately, they're way out in the front on some. Yeah, of these. absolutely. Yeah, and if you set them up on a on a device, a slider, so you can mount the, level, the, the camera on a tripod and get the lens semi-centered over the center pivot point of the tripod, and you slide that camera back a ways, and you measure about, you know, 20, 24 millimeters behind the front lens, okay, and then you do your swivel. If you look through there and you line up a couple of parallel lines, uh, a pole, I use, I, I've got a slit gauge that I use, but I have, you can do it out in the field if you line up a corner of a building and something on the other side. And as you swing the camera to the right and to the left, if you see the pole on the other side move in accordance with the edge of the building, then you're not on your nodal point. And you move the camera back and forth until you don't see that movement anymore. And you'll be right because on the... the fundamental, yeah, yeah, the fundamental principle is there's no parallax when I'm on my nodal point and yeah. I do a pan. Yeah, yeah. And then that way, when you start... If you do a, a panorama then, and you pan on, on that, you don't have the image moving in and out on you in the corners. Okay, it's a lot but easier when, to line it up. When I answered that question, you came back with what I described as the fast food alternative, if you yes, can. Yes, the straw. 
yeah, you get a you get a nice long straw and you put it out in front and you put it over in the corner angle of view of the lens, look through the viewfinder, and if you can see a tunnel all the way down that that uh, straw, you bring that line, you bring that imaginary line back through your lens, and where it intersects the center of the lens, okay, you draw a perpendicular line straight out from your sensor, and then you have this tangent line coming in from the right or left, and where it intersects would be approximately where your nodal point is. It's close enough. It's not an optical <laughs> bench, but it sure gets you close. Yeah, you do that with lasers, right? <laughs> yeah, but that's different. Yeah, we, we we do it with straws. Yeah, well, it's the same idea. Good trick. I'm using light, you know. It's yeah, just not no, laser sure. light. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, no, it's it's a great it's a great point. Um, which brings me to your underwater housings, because uh, we were discussing the the problem with the when you put a camera in underwater housing. Of course, everyone wants to put a zoom lens in there, so they never have to unclip the housing and worry about resealing it. But that's a problem with a zoom lens, isn't it, the nodal point? Well, yeah, because different zooms, a lot of the newer zooms do what they call a shifting nodal point. So they'll shift as much as, you know, 10 to 12 millimeters. Uh, the nodal point will go forwards and backwards according to where the zoom is set up for, okay? So, you know, you're trying to be on the arc radius of the, of the dome for your nodal point, and if you set it up like at 16 millimeters and you zoom out to 35, okay, that nodal point has changed on you and your corners aren't going to be as good because you've thrown it off. Zoom lenses aren't the greatest thing for underwater. Prime lenses are better. You know, it's easier. Because I'm trying to match that to the curvature of the uh, front of the housing? Yeah, the dome. Mm -hmm. The optical yeah. dome on the front, yeah. So you try and get the Maybe dome centered on the nodal point, yeah. Maybe you should explain to people why you don't just stick a flat piece of glass in the front of an underwater housing. Well, because the refraction index of water increases the magnification of the lens. So you not only increase the focal length of the lens, okay, you narrow the angle of view. And as light passes through flat glass, okay, it does a shift on the out, out corners, especially a wide-angle lens. Macro lenses aren't too bad because everything's a little bit more parallel. But the minute you throw a wide-angle lens in there, a flat port is horrible. You need to you need to compensate so, for the 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 magnification of water by putting a negative lens in front of it, which is like a dome. Yeah. So effectively, we're drawing more of a straight line from yeah. the water through the glass housing yeah. dome through to to our lens, rather than making it bend left and right. Yeah. And from the of, front surface yeah. to the rear surface of the glass and bending it. Yeah. Now, you've done a lot of underwater housings, and in fact, you're a bit of a surfer, aren't you, as well? You've got a real love for the sea. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I'm, I'm just finished design, helping design uh, uh, quite a few different ones. I did the... Uh, Elwin Gates and I built the H38, which was the Hasselblad Superwide housing for Hasselblad. Put that right. one out. I've worked on... I've worked with a lot of different companies. I kind of come in and help out with different things. Uh, Nauticam is and, another company I'm working with out of China right now. And I, you've been doing some work on noise reduction with some companies, haven't you? Uh, well, Topaz is about the only one that really listens. <laughs> some I of these, actually think they have superb tools. Yeah, um, oh, they're great. Before you got I mean, to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Dr. Yang is pretty smart, but he listens. You know, he, he He's open to suggestions for some of these people at Nick Software and others. You know, they, they know it all. Um, 
And so you were saying that one of the things that uh, we touched on earlier is one of the aspects that uh, that the software is looking at. I hope this uh, is something I can ask you about, but uh, you're actually looking at correcting that banding that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, well, so you can correct a lot of uh, diffusion. You know, you can do layer diffusion. There's a whole bunch of ways to get kind of fake noise, okay, to get rid of it. But you're degrading the image one way or the other. And uh, that's the only way you can get it out of there. It's masking it and diffusing it and unsharpening it and there's a variety of things and different channels. You can treat different channels with it. And uh, But banding is a real problem, you know, because you're not treating the whole image. you got to treat sections of the image or find out where it is. And there's vertical and horizontal banding that goes on in some of these chips. And And that's really, that's a chicken and egg problem, isn't it? Because that's what makes it so hard to fix. If you knew what the band was... Right. where it was and exactly what was going on, then you'd have a lot easier time correcting for it. But half the yeah, problem it, is actually identifying. It's really hard to see it in an image that's busy, but if you've got a big yeah. blue sky and you want it pure, <laughs> you know, banding will give you a different exposure look. You know, you'll look at it and you go, well, that really isn't very an even sky. Maybe it wasn't. You know, maybe there was something in the sky. And uh, so, so there's another reason other than finding dust on your sensor to shoot straight blue sky shots. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I toss on a piece of advice here, too. If you're shooting with an APS-sized sensor, use APS-sized lenses that are designed for that. And if you're shooting with a full-frame camera, use the full-frame lenses, of course, because the small ones will vignette. But if you take the full-frame lenses and you put them on an APS-sized camera, you will notice a reduction in resolution or some other errors in there. And uh, a lot of people don't realize this. You know, they think, well, i got all these L-series lenses. I'll use them on everything. But you're actually going to get finer, better results, sharper results, uh, if you use an APS a lens that's actually designed for an APS-I sensor. And why is that? Well, it's just the way the optics are, are laying that image down on the chip. Okay. Because uh, I thought I'd be picking up the sweet spot of my L lens. Well, you you'd if think I, that so was true, but it's not there. always true. Yeah. See, and, and it, it, you know that that's kind of a misnomer using the sweet spot of the lens when it comes to chips. Okay, it's not film. It used to be true on film, but not anymore. Okay, the the response, the you know the the characteristics of a chip responding to light falling on it is very very sensitive more so than film ever was. That's why we see more flaws in our pictures doing digital than we ever did before. And you really just need to stick with what the lens designers are out there doing. And why are they designing APS size lenses? Why don't they just design a lens that fits all cameras? That is, you know, that itself answers it right there. Because you need to have a lens to match the period. Can I ask you, we, we spoke about the red chip earlier, and I know that you're familiar with the, the red uh, M series, the, the Millennium uh, Mysterium chip, but have you seen much or read much about the, um, the new epics with the HDR mode and the ability to combine exposures? Um, I've read about it. Uh, they can do that. Um, I know that some of the cameras in there, they have built in, in the back of your camera, on the on the 35 cameras, you can dial in noise filter. 
you know, so it's being processed. Yeah. Even though it's a raw image, you can do that. Um, what they're doing is called dark body radiation, and, and they take two shots very quickly. The, the light exposure one that when you did your exposure, and then there's another reading that comes off the chip instantly later, okay? And they run that through that uh, an algorithm, and it will read the hot pixels, and it'll take them out of your image, Okay. Yeah, so this is like a black black subtraction virtually. Yeah, it's a black subtraction is really what it is. And so that takes some of the noise out. And uh, if your camera has that in it, that's a very good way to go because it's being done right up front before it actually gets processed in a raw processor. It's still in its static mode. Um, the HDR double capture, I don't know if they're taking two instantaneous images or if they have an algorithm in there that just takes the dynamic range of the chip and provides an under and over exposure. I see. believe it's sequential. Yeah, I it, it, it is. is sequential, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because okay. it's obviously you're going for the highlights in the second one, yeah. so it's a very short exposure because you obviously yeah. don't want to get the highlight hit, or you want to have like a very short exposure. Yeah, well, they may be doing what I call a gain alteration, okay? And if they just immediately shuffle the gain from one end to the other, uh, it's like changing ISOs, and that is like exposure compensation, but wouldn't you just take a very, sh very short exposure to get well, additional information? So, yeah. That I don't yeah. know. I don't know what the uh, exposure limits are on on that chip. How fast it's uh, it's doing sixty frames. Uh, oh, it'll go much higher than that. Well, I'm saying at yeah. sixty frames, does it do HDR at oh, the right. high I'm end sorry. or at the low end? I'm I'm probably thinking it's doing it only at the low end. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. If people wanted to have a look at some of your photography, because you've got a lot of Really nice work that you've not only published but also won awards for and stuff. Where yeah. would they? Um, well, I just have fun. My rep puts all my stuff out there. I don't put a lot of the technical stuff up there because it's proprietary crap. But um, yeah, just the pretty picture stuff I do. You know, I play around with all kinds of things. I just have my likes and dislikes, and you know, I try and do what I want to do, not what anybody else does. You know, I'm <laughs> kind of finicky. But what whatever. would be what would be a good website to go to? Well, I have a, uh, my books are all on the website, which is LeePetersonPhotography.com. Excellent. And I and, just uh, and yeah, I just had a show at the Oceanside Museum of Art, and it was supposed to be up for two months, and they extended it another month because it was such a big show. It had sixty six images in it, and that one is up on www peterson.jalbum.net and you can see the book that was produced on that one there and then I have uh, leepetersonphotography.com slash global with a capital G and that is a lot of my global work that I do. I do it both with uh, objects, lenses or Photoshop. You know, It's a mixture of everything. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. I really, really appreciate it. Well, I hope we meet up. I hope you, your flood zones down there get better, too. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, and bye-bye. Well, thanks, Lee. 
fantastic chat. Thanks for taking the time. We've, great we finally tracked you down or got to tee up. Uh, and thanks for finally answering the question of what is the speed uh, or the base ISO of a 5D. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, terrific. Great, great chat. Thank you, Mike. So let's uh, shift to the gear. And now, the RC Gear Guide. And in the gear section, I wanted to... Uh, well, it's a couple of things we can discuss about gear this week. Um, I think we should probably, well, go for the fun stuff first, which has to be GoPro, because GoPro defines fun. It is. It's fantastic. And anyone's actually obviously who's ever used one uh, know that it's a complete guessing competition because there is no – there is line-outs to be able to um, line your stuff up, but uh, obviously it's outboard equipment and you can't really use it where you would take a GoPro, i.e. strapping it to the front of your rally car or onto the front of your snowboard. Um, but now GoPro are just kicking it with this very simple little uh, LCD backpack, they call it, which is a little removable LCD monitor for the HD Hero cameras, which are also already awesome. But um, this is a really clever little piece of kit. It clicks on uh, into the back of the GoPro. Anybody who's actually had a bit of play with the GoPro will realise there's a real sort of unusual kind of like an iPod kind of uh, slot on the back of it. Uh, this basically piggybacks, clicks firmly right on the back of the camera. So it actually lets you just put it in your hand and use it like a normal camera without having to guess. Uh, and obviously what there also comes with is a, very, a few selection of um, underwater housing backs. So you can actually adapt your existing underwater housing that came with the GoPro so that you can put the whole thing uh, uh, inside the waterproof housing with the, with the monitor on the back. Uh, it's got an inbuilt speaker as well so you can gauge your, um, gauge your audio and runs off the internal battery of the camera. And I can't really tell what the specs are. There's no specs on, on, on how big the monitor is, but if you know the size of a GoPro, it's bloody tiny. <laughs> it's not really about judging focus because the camera doesn't have a focus control per se. It's really uh, just there. It's, it's like a framing guide. Obviously, you don't even have to run with it. The camera, you can, with the LCD on, you can actually click the LCD on, frame it, and then set and forget, take the LCD off and run with that. You can actually use one, I guess you could use one of these backpacks with multiple cameras if you've got three or four cameras, one on a helmet and one on the uh, snowboard and whatever, one on the windscreen of a chase car, whatever. You could um, go use one LCD, go frame everything, then lock them all down and then go roll. So, And the amazing thing about it is it's 79 bucks for the monitor. So, I mean, the cameras are already amazingly cheap. They're like a, a no-brainer if you've got to do a little BCD kind of <laughs> rig no cameras, EF camera camera or if you just want to have fun they're a fantastic little little thing for, for the you know the kids in the pool now uh, uh, changing uh to monitoring for a second of a different kind i think if you've listened to this show before you know jason i have a bit of a a bit of a love of the uh, offboard uh no longer back of the camera monitoring on an slr yes and so it is with great interest that we note that marshall has released a seven inch hdmi monitor with hdmi pass-through so this is uh, right up the alley of the director on set who has to shoot a commercial with a 5D and has Video Village off the back mm. because you would take the HDMI out of your camera, feed it to the 7-inch Marshall that's sitting to the side, which, let's face it, 7-inch Marshalls are really good little monitors, yep. and then pass a loop through from that way off to a bigger monitor, obviously, where the agency might be sitting with their lattes and copies of the Sydney Morning Herald. Mm. So obviously, normally, you'd have to have a, uh, a some sort of HDMI splitter and obviously you have to power that, and then there's extra cables. So this is uh, 
I don't think it's actually quite released yet. They've announced no, it. ships it. in I a week. It ships in a week? Okay. Yes, this is the thing. that I, I, was, I was very particular about this. It wasn't just that – because no, I flagged this one to Jace during the week. It was like not, oh, we're going to do something. It's like we're going to do something and it's going to ship. Cool. So this is uh, the essentially the guts of their existing LCD 70 XP, which is I think is what you've got, Mike. Mm-hmm. This is essentially the loop-through version of, of your monitor. That's not annoying at all, is it? Um, <laughs> so anyway, it's, again, Marshall are uh, kicking it. Great monitors, obviously. Uh, as with all their monitors, they've got a selection of battery plates on the back, so you don't have. To, you can run it off uh, four-pin XLR, or you can run it off Sony, Panasonic, uh, Nikon, Can or no, no, Nikon, but certainly Canon battery plates to run it off whatever. Um, and uh, a little bit big for my liking, but this is. I'm no doubt what they will do is obviously take this technology. Add this on to their smaller stuff, their five-inch and their larger monitors. Like so I'm imagining they're going to add HDMI loop-through to all of them stuff, yeah. as everybody should. Doesn't seem like a big deal, but if you're actually out in the field working, it's a big yeah. deal. It is a big deal, definitely. I mean, these things, when you want to have small, simple rigs, and all of a sudden it gets really complicated with extra bits and pieces and powering this stuff. So um, HDMI is a pain. But this sort of, I guess, makes it slightly less of a pain. Yeah, you've got, is. you've gone and while we've been talking, put a thing on my 5D that's sitting here on the desk. Ah, uh, yes. The Another thing we're going to follow up on is uh, I that? have a CLM V55, the Sony uh, onboard five-inch. Is this the Sony thing that works with the Canon that you were talking about? Yes, or? this is what we talked. I think I think last last episode we talked about it, and I said obviously let's get our hands on one, which we have. Thank you very much, Sony, for lending us one to check it out. I and because like uh, there was a lot of things we weren't quite sure about, um, and there was a lot of uh, information going around about it, about what it does and what it doesn't do. Um, and there's a few things which I may have said last time, which I think it may do, which it does not. It is a very much simpler monitor than I think we are perhaps used to with the uh, small HD and. And with Marshalls, it does a lot of great things, um, but uh, obviously it's it's a it's a slightly cheaper monitor as well. So you know it can't be expected to do everything. Um, it's got a very simple menu system. It's got a sort of click jog wheel on the on the side. That is uh, first of all, it's five inch. It's very lightweight. Uses the Sony M battery system, um, and it's got, yeah, literally it's got a power on button. It's got a DC in. It's got full-size HDMI socket on it, and it has uh, a jog shuttle wheel, which basically lets you step through uh, some pretty simple menu system, being able to do, uh, you know, color, contrast, color balance, color temperature, um, and a one-to-one pixel um, uh, check for focus check, and has that very, very good um, uh, focus uh, peaking which we talked about, and that plays really well. That's exactly, that's pretty much straight out of what we're used to with the F3. Uh, what it doesn't do is there's no hot keys. There's no sort of hot buttons to be able to assign something like this button will do the one-to-one focus easily, or this button will do the um, the, the peaking. You have to basically scroll through on the menu system to uh, to do that. So it's really designed more for sort of set and forget. It's not, not quite so set up for on-set use, but again... Uh, it's, you know, I guess it's more probably a little bit more leaning towards um, uh, consumer. 
but you know it could certainly be used in professional professional use it's just it's, it's just a little bit simpler it doesn't have any sort of uh, magnification modes when you or with the 5d when you change resolutions it changes resolution if you're you can't sort of blow blow it up or, or scale it buttons. in any way yeah which is one of the things I think earlier uh, we thought it might do on the upside though picture wise it's really nice it's got good resolution the off axis viewing is really nice I think it's mm-hmm. definitely on par with with my small HD uh, doesn't get get really dim or, or change color or anything. The off axis is really good. Uh, it's quite bright. You know, it's good. Reasonably, you know, it's good for um, outside viewing. Works really well. The um, yeah. So I think it, I think it's good. The retail price is still a little bit woolly. Uh, I think it's going to come in a little bit under the five inch Marshall, which I think is about four ninety nine. So I'm hoping the price will be a little bit under the five hundred mark, but we'll, we'll see. So price is still TBA. But um, so look, it's it's very simple, simple, straightforward monitor. I love the little uh, swivel mount though; that's really nice. It's like a friction friction mount, which goes straight onto hot shoe. You don't have to unlock anything to move it. You can just grab it with your bare hands and just move it around. Great size, as we've talked about, five inch on top of um, DSLRs. So I want to throw in a piece of kit which is also SLR related, which um, I acknowledge totally was uh, something that I learned about on the Twitters because uh, I think Twitter's a good place when people like flag something that's, uh, that's new. Mm-hmm. And um, I found it, I thought it was really good, then I lost it again and had to re-find it again. So thanks to those that, uh, that gave me links to it. It's um, actually the right stuff, the really right stuff, um, and Red Rock Micro set up. Now, the reason that I like this is that I've had a bit of a thing for a while where you put a base uh, clamp on a... SLR, I find that it has a fashion for getting loose. Now, I know that yep. there's a locking little tiny pin that you can put in that you can stick in some of your base plates that will actually go into a tiny little hole on your SLR. Yep. But that's just tiny little things that I lose or tiny little things that I lost on the tripod <laughs> when I got it because I use it for other cameras and it's not interchangeable between every camera. We'll get you another one, Mike. Yeah, whatever. The thing is, this has got a, like a little um, base plate that sits up front and back of the camera yeah so the base plate is inherently much more stable less likely to move so that's point number one point number two is that this put us on to or put me on to the right stuff's l bracket now the l bracket is really good for those of you doing still photography as well because you can unclip the bracket from shooting yeah. uh, landscape and just go straight to portrait and it'll keep the center of the lens pretty much where it was as opposed to if you went over on your um, ball and socket joint, it'd be off to one side. People really like the really right stuff. Stuff it is, you know, reasonably expensive for what it is, but it's beautifully machined. It, as you say, it what it does is there's a couple of kinds of plates. One is just a basic bottom plate, but it has a lip on the back of the camera, which basically lets the camera stops the camera from rotating on its uh, on the quarter inch bolt. Uh, I am a fan of the DSLR base plate from Red Rock Micro if you don't lose the little hex pin, which, as you said, does locate beautifully in the bottom of the camera and stops it rotating because the last thing you want to do is pick up the camera. If it's on a rig with follow focus and everything, you go to pick it up and your follow focus isn't working. working Nothing's happening because the camera has moved two mil away from... The the lens has moved two mil away from your follow focus. So it's a right pain in the ass. If you've got a rig like this, you really need something that's going to lock off this rotation. And the really right stuff does that. What it does have is a gorgeous, really big, uh, almost like a um, bicycle seat post 
really nice sort of cam lock on the back of the things to uh, right. lock that onto the bottom plate. The other thing they do have is, what, as you say, it's called the L plate, which lets you go from portrait to landscape if you're going to go that way. Not you, so you much said of it's a, expensive. How much, is it really expensive? Because, um, no, I mean, the Red Rock Micro stuff normally isn't expensive. Are you on a Really Right, right Stuff's uh, website? Because I think they all sell direct on Really Right, right Stuff's website. Um, the, so basically what happened, Red, Red Rock Micro, in their wisdom, have realised that a lot of people do like Really Right Stuff and have made a a 15mm clamp, a 15mm rod clamp that suits the really right stuff um, bracket. That's Obviously, you can get that from redrockmicro.com. Um, uh, or, or, as I say, the DSLR base plate is also there, which I really like as well. Um, yeah, you really want to sort of stop this rotating stuff. But, you know, it's all... So we're talking like 120 bucks type money. For the clamp and a back base plate, just or just the for the L clamp? plate is worth. Sorry, I, I hate people that do this normally, but um, yeah, I, I only just saw this as we were going to air. Rather, only got people to report back. Yes, the L plate is, hundred and forty to hundred and eighty kind of number. Okay, so the bottom roles. part of that from Red Rock Micro is called the fifteen mil, uh, the clamp fifteen mil for really right stuff, and that's two hundred twenty nine dollars. And then you have got the uh, really right stuff clamp to go on the top of that. Yeah, and as Jay says, because the, if you're using the old clamp, because it's very camera specific, so you can get cabling into the side of your camera, uh, you have to get a different one for whichever camera you're really on. So a 10 is different from a... Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so that's all. And the other thing for raising about this is, um, if you don't know already, um, we put out show notes, which are linked from the website. So if you want to go to the website, fxguide.com, uh, into the new SMIC uh, section called podcasting and do uh, Red Center and find this podcast if you haven't done that so already you can download the show notes which is you know uh, got all the pics and links that you need to um, follow up on the stuff actually I'm going to put another link in there which I just thought of uh, I sent a, a Twitter link out I'm not sure if you saw it Mike you might have been busy with your move but uh, there's a really quite a good uh, YouTube uh, video from posted by uh, Sky New Sky TV in UK about their live 3D going out with live 3D and what it takes for them to set up a 3D sports broadcast, which is actually quite interesting. Um, obviously, it's a little bit out of our sort of you know scheme of um, discussion here on Red Red Centre on RC, but it's definitely seen? still worth worth um, worth a look because it's how they treat their rigs if they're going way up the back of a stadium. They've got cameras with quite a wide interocular versus the cameras right on the sideline which then they go for mirror rigs because they want a smaller interocular and what was quite interesting on the video is actually going uh, looking at the fact that they have a central stereographer who has uh, in his hand a controller which is linked to every single camera in the stadium and he will be controlling the interocular distance on every one of those cameras they're all servoed and he can control it all so it's quite interesting that there's one guide or links back to and does it all live it sets them all up um, lines them all up and then controls on the fly the uh, interocular of all the set uh, and it was quite interesting also the discussion about how they're uh, I call editing, but their, how their, their vision switching style and their shooting style changes when they go to 3D. It becomes a bit simpler and a lot less busy, a lot less cut pace. And they're really, it's quite an interesting discussion talking about looking after the viewer and, and, and not, uh, you know, making it all about as, as, as pleasant an experience uh, as possible, making 3D work rather than uh, just be a gimmick. So, yeah, I'll put links to that in the show notes, but it's uh, really quite a, quite a cool, cool video. Speaking of which, have you seen Match Fit? No. At the World Cup? No. Okay. Spot? 
it's a it's a it's a hysterical spot. I'll give you a link, but we're going to try and do a story on it. For FX Guide. Oh, this is for the this is the camera getting the cameraman getting ready for yes right right I, I've seen some of it yes it's clever cameraman go, cameraman going to boot camp yeah I tweeted about it saying you ever see one of those spots where you immediately go God I wish I'd thought of that <laughs> this is one of those spots um, and and while we're on that but it's uh, done really well because oh, yeah. it's uh, you know gr- huge production value yeah totally um, that's on YouTube but we'll also send a link as I said we're trying to do a story with those guys if they'll um. They're actually talking to us now, trying to get permission so that they can discuss it. Oh, it's just a hysterical spot. Hey, um, Jace, we should. Oh, while we're talking about Twitters, just flag your Twitter, which is uh, actually someone who's uh, on for next week uh, on next week's show, uh, John Glossarian, who is John Gould's J O H N G U L E S on Twitter. He is the DP of uh, the DSLR feature, like crazy, which. Uh, uh, scooped a fair few awards at Sundance last week and was all shot on uh, Hot Rod uh, 7D, modded 7Ds, and, uh, yeah, has been now, although obviously the budget is, is quite small, but it was uh, been pre-sold to Paramount, I think, for about $4 million so far. Uh, and, yeah, scooped a fair few awards and looks really nice so far. So I got a chance to chat to John this week, and he'll be on the next show. So that is John G-U-L-E-S on Twitter. Thanks, John, for having a chat, and we'll talk to him next week. Now, of course, Jace, you're Wingrove on Twitter. I am. I'm Mike Seymour. And uh, while we're on cross-promotional thingies, not that we are, but there you go. Um, Why not? We're talking about shitting on the 5D. The uh, VFX show this week is discussing Black Swan, which had, of course, primarily its photography done on 16mm, mm. but mm. intercut that with 7D and 5D footage. And so we touched on that uh, over in the... Uh, in the uh, VFX show, which uh, has a new guest this week, or a new host, I should say. Um, uh, Ty's joining us, and uh, so have a listen to that. He's an amazing guy, uh, an art director with years of experience at places like ILM, from literally working on uh, Jurassic Park right through to uh, Avatar. So, um, uh, And he joins Matt and I in the uh, VFX show this week. So that's, again, yeah, over on fxguy.com. I haven't got around to seeing it yet. Oh, dude, you've just, as a director, you absolutely got to see yeah, it. I it's so performance driven it's I mean great VFX but mm. I think and the uh, 7D will, footage was more obviously just in the sub I believe that's just a subway, subway sequence yeah. because obviously because I think now to do it really almost stole the footage got on the plane got on the train shot it on the fly well that uh, is one of the advantages of an SLR yeah absolutely and you know it's uh, as we proved in Tokyo when we pulled out a P2 we got thrown out of Starbucks but we'd been filming for already an hour by that stage with an SLR and no one had even yeah, batted an eyelid. Yeah, and the second still... we pulled out the five, the uh, P two in the same location, we were thrown out. Yep, they still haven't got quite wised up to it. It's still a great way to stay under the radar. Though I must note, I've been going to a couple of concerts because it's summer here. And uh, may I just say, like last night, Sting. I'm a big Sting police the fan. House. I would have worn a police t shirt, but not a Sting t shirt. I'm that kind of a fan. Yeah. And yet, I went and saw Sting last night. His concert was better than the police when they came out to Australia. It was just three hours, three encores. They ran out of songs for the encore, so he just did the last song, Message in a Bottle, by himself uh, with one guitar. But he had, anyway, it's full. It's the uh, the symphony tour, right? So he has, like, the right. Australian so, Sydney, Sydney Symphony, symphony Orchestra, Orchestra behind him. Mm. And if you've... I mean, just hearing um, Englishman in New York with clarinet and stuff, it was yes, of just course. awesome. Of course. And uh, the sun's setting... I'm taking photos on my five on my uh, on my yes, iPhone. Thank I can't you. Take I was sitting at home on my bum, and I'm getting these great 
videos as sun setting on uh, Sydney Harbour and Mike's there on the Opera House steps uh, with Sting and the, and the SSO. Very impressive. So, I mean, were they were they policing like cameras and things? I mean, you could have had your five D there. Really. No, they were policing. They were pulling people even for umbrellas and weird things. But um, yeah, umbrellas is a big thing now. They did the same thing with Opera. Oprah. But I've got <laughs> you were at Opera. No. Oh, um, but no. I've got to say that uh, yeah, no, it was it was such uh, an, an amazing because the sun setting. There's a nice breeze. It was incredibly hot in Sydney at the moment. It's been like 30, 40 degrees Celsius. And uh, there's a P&O liner leaving. So it's uh, backing out with tugs. Yeah. Of course, that looks picturesque against the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge. Uh, music was phenomenal. As I say, three hours, just absolutely brilliant. But I've got to say, I'm sitting there and I'm taking these photos on my iPhone. The reason I'm bringing this up. And, I'll have to put them in the show notes now. Well, yeah. mm, right. But it's not... But, you know, that's what you do, right? Everybody does that. Yeah. But I'm thinking to myself, why can't I just send a still from my 5D? Why yeah. can't I just... Isn't there, like, a huge gap in... Because everybody does that. Like, I send it to you and to people in Chicago and Los Angeles, just, like, having a great time. If it was a 550, I think then you could have... And it had an SD card slot, then I guess you could put an iFi card in there, and you probably could. There seems to be a real gap. I don't quite understand why you can do an iFi card... For SD card, but you can't. There's no wireless. Why wouldn't you CF just make a, a field photography camera that's an SLR that can send photos? Yeah. I mean, I know that it's not a phone; it's a bloody SLR. Mm. But surely there's news gathering. I mean, you're in a, you're in a, you know, war zone or whatever it is. You're in a, some kind of an emergency situation, and you're reporting or a breaking story. Let's forget emergencies for a second. You're just in a breaking. You know, I mean, well, the, they do, don't they? Isn't that the W? There's, there's Canon has that wireless adapter. But, but sure I, want, I want more stuff. than wireless. I want, like, friggin' full internet. Yeah. I mean... This uh, is a very different setup to what I'm talking about, yes. You want some sim- simplicity, you know. Oh, I don't want even simplicity. I just want, a, like, a kick-ass SLR that can send photos. Mm. And and uh, if that was a bolt-on bottom unit... Now, everyone would say, oh, you want to make it really bulky. But how bloody bulky is an iPhone? Yeah. Like, put the guts of an iPhone. Obviously, it wouldn't be an iPhone. It would be a whatever. Yeah, exactly. But the guts the, of the a phone. The actual sending chip, a 3G part It's got to be really a, small. Yeah. You wouldn't need the screen because you've already got it. Stick all of that on the bottom. No, but seriously, like, make yeah. a base plate for an SLR. It would be a couple of mil, same size as the SLR. Screw just, it on, Mr. Cannon. Yep. What, you were rolling your eyes at me? No, no, no. Or just, if it just had Wi-Fi, everyone's got an iPhone, right? Is, so it should be able to Wi-Fi from your camera to your iPhone, and then you oh. can manage it, and then you can manage all your, sent, you know, your so contacts. I see what you're saying. So, so just skip the, it needs to use the telecommunication. Well, that's a yeah, you could go bang, bang, and then you've got your iPhone. You can go, oh, I'll send that to this person, this person, this person. I'll make it this size. You know, you literally, as you go bang, 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 a JPEG, the JPEG version. Yeah, we're, not ex- yeah. we're not expecting the full raw to go no. you know, through Wi-Fi too. And quite frankly, you could send a really good quality JPEG and still be inside the sort of allowable bandwidth of a that kind of a mm. iPhone app. Yeah, yeah. Um, I sent a video uh, to you. Yeah. Now, it was like... 10 seconds long or 15 seconds long mm. of just a pan around the opera house and it wasn't great cinematography I'm not saying it was but no you get completely how, get the if idea if that's the ass- bloody assassination on the grassy knoll mm. I mean if you're a journalist or in this day and age just somebody that's um, dealing with you know stuff that's developing yeah um, yeah I mean if you look at uh, we've literally we've recently just had a massive uh, cyclone here in um, northern uh, in northern parts of Australia 
and uh, all the guys are out there literally with uh, on Skype and uh, through 3G phones just trying to uh, to get footage out and it's been pretty uh, pretty hard for them to be able to do that so yeah there's a really there seems to be a real gap in that sort of area really the, the footage that comes out is really quite it seems like it's really out of the arc there's uh, seems to be a real gap in that sort of technology really yeah because it just feels like there's this assumption that well that's not what we use cameras for yeah but it's all changing absolutely if you've got you know particularly i mean you you send a shot from your iphone to say wow look where i am but it's really nice to send a shot from your 5d to say look at this glorious shot i just shot yeah just after i shot it rather than the next day when i got home and lightroomed it to death yeah, and even if you were just doing it for like, uh, you know, is this the one that you want, or is this the, you know, is this the kind of angle on the car you're after? Yeah, like there's a thousand reasons why you want to send that shot. Yeah, it's the Polaroid. I wonder if this thing's got Wi-Fi. <laughs> he says this thing pointing at the thing on the desk. NEX five. Dear listener who can't hear. And by the way, congratulations yeah. on your film. I believe it's just been accepted into some international film festival in America. Uh, yes, uh, moving day. I think got accepted into a couple of things, and uh, I think it's Cleveland, the, the, the prestigious Cleveland Film Festival. <laughs> we await further um, acceptances with uh, open arms. Yeah, it's good making films. Yeah, it's, no, it's about. great. Absolutely, good fun. Guys, thanks so much for listening to us. Um, as always, keep the uh, emails and stuff coming. We do get, obviously, a bunch of them, and we really try and answer every single one of them. So um, thank you. Um, and if you send it to red at fxguide.com, you'll get both Jason and I uh, and the other guys um, uh, seeing and hearing what you have to say. Until next time, uh, I'm Mike Seymour. I'm Jason Mingrove. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. This podcast sponsored by Storm, the red digital cinema production hub from the Foundry. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.